0: Under your butt. I'm of course surprised that a story had such an immediate
1: and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hui. Joey Clark. Uh, Hello and welcome to the program. You are listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm, of course, your host, Joey. And tonight I have another call-in guest. She was actually on my show when it was just a Saturday show. Her name is Brittany Hunter. She's an associate editor at the Foundation for Economic Education. And she sort of stumbled into the world of free market economics. After she was in college and she has taken up to writing about the subject and doing it in all sorts of creative ways. An incredible writer. Without further ado, welcome Brittany Hunter. How are you tonight?
2: I am wonderful. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, thank you for being here and spending an hour of your your night here. Okay. Um, let's begin because, you know, I sit here. Mostly these airwaves are conservative talk. Our demographic is probably 55 and up. Those are most of the listeners. And they have seen what's happening on college campuses. Uh, They have seen, well, what they like to call snowflakes. And there is some of that. But there's also a lot of crapping on millennials. And so, excuse me, pardon me, but I think we need to correct our elders or those who maybe want to use crapping on millennials as a way to get website clicks and you <laughs> address this today. What is going on with all this blaming millennials for ruining industries in the economy?
2: Yeah, it's it's just it, it never ceases to amaze me uh, what thing we ruin next. <laughs> because for the last uh, almost two years, I've written a lot about free market economics as it applies to millennials. And um, part of the reason that appealed to me is because I noticed every day on my news feed there was some new thing. Millennials are ruining napkins. Millennials are ruining grocery shopping. And it was it was very what uh, can't say. It was very you know they chastised us. It was kind of like how dare you take away these industries. But um, when I really lost it is when we were blamed for shutting down chain restaurants like like Applebee's and things of like that. And I was thinking like how is this a bad thing? <laughs> you know. But what really got me thinking is um, I, I'm a huge fan of the concept of uh, creative destruction.
0: Yeah. And
2: that's an economic uh, term coined by Joseph uh, Schumpeter. I always say that wrong. <laughs> but uh, what I love about that is I think it applies to this so perfectly, wherein everything that we are, you know, quote-unquote, destroying, um, we're, we're replacing it with something better. So I, I'm having a hard time thinking, you know, how, how this is a bad thing. So, yes, maybe we're not grocery shopping as much as older generations, but uh, look at like HelloFresh and Blue Apron. You know, there's these meal delivery services now that really tie in and fit with our lives. So I just think I think we get an unfair rap because yes, we do things differently, but I think we're actually making the world a far more convenient place.
1: Absolutely. And for example, you you point out in your piece like how are millennials ruining ruining napkins?
2: Yes, thought, this one is so funny to me. I'm glad you brought this up. So, yeah, so there's this big piece, you know, Millennials Are Ruining Napkins. And before I click on the link, I like to try to hypothesize how on earth we're ruining, you know, this disaster. Oh, this sector. sure, yeah, yeah. And, and napkins just left me stumped because I'm thinking, like, I use napkins. You know, I, wipe, I wipe my hands and face off after a eat. Right.
0: Um,
2: and what happened is millennials are still using napkins. We're just using paper towels instead. We're not buying both paper napkins and paper towels. We found a way to save money by just buying a big thing of paper towels. Um, so it wasn't even that we were destroying a sector, we just found a way to be more budget-friendly. Uh, so that one was particularly funny to me, because we actually solved a huge problem, we were saving money.
1: Well, and essentially, a paper towel is a form of a napkin, it's both a napkin exactly. and a towel, it, it can also serve as a plate if you're eating pizza. Like <laughs> Exactly, it's everything, right? It's, it's, just- it's ridiculous, and you say here in your piece that millennials are even ruining, and this is the one, and I was triggered. I I turned into a little (laughs) snowflake. That millennials are yes, they're ruining boobs. The tatas. That and I I clicked on the the piece you linked to, and it is so ridiculous. Like you read the piece, and it's just a clickbait article. And it's oh yeah, what is it? How have millennials become the scapegoat for everything wrong in America?
2: Yeah, you know, and I would like to believe that every this happens in every generation. Um, that, you know, baby boomers blame Gen Xers and so on and so forth. But I think with millennials, it's, it's a little bit different. And I think it's because there are so many of us. I mean, we are now the largest, you know, potential voting block. We are the largest consumer base. That's never really happened before. Um, and so I think what we're seeing now is, is we're seeing what we our wants and desires are actually being manifested, right? And so where people say, oh, millennials are lazy. They won't go to the store and grocery shop. Well, yeah, why would I grocery shop when I can have my groceries delivered to me or I can do this? You know, so it's it's, it's turning into this, this condemning where really it's like, hey, we're making the world easy for you. But it's, it's gotten out of hand, I think, <laughs> as, as the boobs prove. So.
1: Yeah, well, they were talking about how millennials have different, if I'm going to put this in, a, uh, in an FCC-approved way, how people are preferring different body types. And I'm just sitting here shaking my head going, this is such a, a piece of crap article. The, yeah, you know, that's, that's how we're going to judge uh, beauty standards. You know, I'm fine with however people want to deal with how they look. But, you know, one really cool app, and this segues into something else you've written about, the sharing economy, the sort of gig economy, is I was sitting down, and I have honestly become a hermit. Because I I sit here and I do get to interact with the world and talk with folks like yourself, talk to callers most of the day. But when I get home, I don't feel like going to a restaurant. And often I don't feel like sitting or making dinner. There's this new app, though, where you can order from restaurants that don't have a delivery service. It's almost like an independent contractor does the delivery for you. And it it was absolutely amazing to me. I'm
2: actually embarrassed at how often I use those services. <laughs> um, but uh, I actually I didn't end up writing it. I almost wrote an article called "If Not for Uber Eats, I'd Starve to Death." And obviously, that's hyperbole. But but there was a point this summer when I was just working all the time, and the only way I found time to eat was using Uber Eats. And like you said, I can order from any restaurant in my locale. You know, and for me, I'm in Atlanta, so I can order from anywhere in the neighborhood, um, and they'll bring it to me in under an hour. Um, it's, pretty incredible and it's not like I'm eating junk food either this is you know a lot of a lot of restaurants now have the organic all-natural theme so I'm still eating quality food and it's being delivered to me. So I can't think of anything better, to be
1: honest. Well, and it's almost like people are just simply reacting to change in a knee-jerk yeah. way. And I find there's a bit of a, a contradiction involved. It's not hypocrisy. It's just I think people aren't thinking things through. And that if you want things to get better, if you want a dynamic economy that is creating jobs, and yet you don't want anything to change. at the, You can't have both. Exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: Well, and you've written about how the sharing economy actually serves as a safety net for a lot of folks, that they're just trying to, you know, the host before me was talking about how he showed up in Miami in the late 70s, and he was broke, and he just wanted opportunity, and he ended up being this huge star. Now, the most folks that come to this country just want opportunity, and sometimes it's not fun, but... The sharing economy and sort of this digital economy uh, is allowing people to get by while they're pursuing other dreams.
2: Yeah, and I, I, I like that you said it's not it's not the most fun because I do want to point that out. I'm not saying like it's the best job in the world and all your problems are going to be solved. Life is not easy, unfortunately. That's, that's just not the way it goes. Um, but one thing I've noticed, um, not only just with millennials, but right now, everybody is working two jobs, right? Or they have a side hustle, as we call them. Yes. Um, if you're a writer, you know, you write for a bunch of different places. You, you, you outsource your skills as much as possible. Um, and so that has made it really, really difficult, you know, for my generation because we're also paying back student loans. We have, we have a lot of debt that we're dealing with. And so the sharing economy not only provides a way to make extra money in and to you know pay your student loans or pay whatever debt you're trying to get out of, but if you were to lose your job, there's always that option. And I think that's something we've never really seen. We've had temp work, but temp work still takes time. It still takes paperwork. The whole point of the sharing economy is how quickly you can, you can become an employee or an independent contractor, rather. But so that's been really interesting to me because you're, you're seeing the free market provide a safety net of of options for people and when you see the government try to regulate this, especially when they try to slow down the Uber driver process was like we saw in Austin, um, then then you you're not letting these people get back to work or letting, you know, millennials get back to work. So yeah, I think that's something that, that we don't really talk about a lot, but that the free market is providing these nets
1: yeah, but Brittany, freedom is dangerous. Liberty <laughs> is risky, and these folks are out there just trying their hardest, you know, to make it in this world. And yet, you're you're undercutting hotels with Airbnb. You're undercutting good, hardworking taxi cab cartels with the Uber and Lyft. I mean, aren't we have gov- government regulations for a reason to keep us safe to make sure? we're going to be okay and that life isn't too risky. Isn't that correct? No.
2: Oh, And one of my favorite uh, examples of this, actually, is uh, I brought up Austin. There was a a period of time where Uber and Lyft um, chose to leave Austin because the um, onboarding process was going to be mandated to be longer for Uber and Lyft drivers. But in their absence, um, DUI rates actually skyrocketed. Hmm. And that presented a very, very clear, you know, picture of, of not only is this creating a safety net, but Uber is actually making the roads safer. So, you know, there's all these benefits I'm having a hard time finding the negative.
1: Well, and, and so often, and again, folks, we're talking to Brittany Hunter. She's an associate editor at the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, that Folks are running into things like occupational licensing or zoning, it, it would be nice to be able to use a home that you own or use a car you already are using to get around to also make a little money on the side. And yet governments continue. It, it almost seems on its face, and maybe it's a libertarian bias in me, that they know what they're doing. They know they're controlling or rent-seeking, as we might say in economics. I mean, how would you reach somebody who maybe thinks it is just for safety? Because I was mentioning on air months ago that we don't need all this occupational licensing to be, say, a barber or a hairdresser. And I got an earful from a barber. Who called and said I did all this work and all these hours of training and I've paid my licenses? So it's almost like the government pits people against each other because some folks actually jumped through all the government hoops.
2: You, you're absolutely right. Um, and then it becomes this us versus them, right? And and when you think about it, and the barber thing is such a good it's such a good point because it's a job that. Um, I'm getting too ahead of myself because I get so passionate about occupational licensing. I have to slow down for a minute. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, if you follow the money, and I hate to say that, but in everything in life and politics, if you follow the money and you see what's happening, um, a lot of the people who are actually lobbying for the occupational licensing belong to trade unions. Hmm. So it's really, really hard for me to see the safety aspects. And one, there really is no solid evidence. Um, an interior designer, for example, doesn't need to have an occupational license. There's no safety hazard involved. Um, but still, they exist. So you look at it, and you're like, oh, wait, so why do these exist? Oh, there's a lobby of union, you know, the Union of Interior Designers. I don't know if that's the real union. I made that <laughs> up. But, um, you know, and then they're lobbying for these laws, and and they're essentially ma- regulating how many people are in the industry. And that's terrible. I mean, if we're talking about a free market, then there should be an easy point of access where anybody can get in into the market. And with barbers, particularly um, – A lot of prisons actually teach uh, barbershops or, um, you know, hair skills, uh, cosmetology. But the problem is they get out, these people get out of prison, these inmates, and and then they have to pay for an occupational license that they can't afford to pay for. And so not only are people paying to keep people out of this industry, you're taking away the opportunity for someone to rebuild their life. Um, So that's that's a really, occupational licensing is wrong in so many ways.
1: Well, in our conversation, I want to step back for a second and shift gears, uh, you know, shift down a little bit, because I began my show the debut show talking about how we really need to make moral sense of our capabilities. We are incredibly wealthy and, you know, relative to everybody else who's lived as human beings on this earth. We have so much technological capabilities, yet we can't seem to make moral sense. Some folks think it needs to be heavily regulated, that you need the imposition of the government. Other folks, I think, like you and I, believe freedom works, and it reminds me... Of the work of Deirdre McCloskey, I believe I saw that you are actually uh, re- looking into her work. Um, would you say? Do you kind of agree with her general thesis? I know it's a it's a big book. There's a lot there, but. That we need more than just say prudence. We need more than just arguing arguing from self interest. That we need these other virtues, and we need to understand that the common person who wants to be a barber, that wants to be a driver, who maybe is doing those things so they can do more incredible things with their life, whether art or starting a bigger business, whatever it is, that we should celebrate these folks, and, and other than just looking at them. As sort of economic units, I almost I wanted to ask you that because you are always writing about the free market economy, or what we would like the free market economy to look like, but you are have such a, a way of telling personal stories about folks. So, what have you taken yeah. from studying McCloskey?
2: So, I will have to admit, I'm still in chapter one because I had a busy few weeks. So, I don't want to I don't want to comment on it yet because I don't know. Okay, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it. But you bring up a point um that actually is kind of the heart and soul of my writing and that is telling stories um i used to be a very aggressive libertarian (laughs) i used to accost people and if they didn't believe or agree with me you know in 30 seconds and i thought they were terrible people and i'd start yelling um and then i realized that i was making no friends i was losing friends and i wasn't making or bringing any converts to to libertarianism either um But then I started realizing, I had to think about why I was a libertarian, why I believed these things. And overall, I want people to not only be free to do what they want to do, but I want them to succeed. And I think that the government just is constantly putting up stumbling blocks that are preventing people from succeeding. So so that to me really hit home because I I thought, okay, so the reason I'm a libertarian is because I want to help people. The best way to help people is not to necessarily say, walk up to people and say taxation is theft, which unfortunately some libertarians do, Mm. but it was to tell these stories. Um, One of the stories I told about occupational licensing was a student who had, um, his school had closed down, and so while he had downtime, he was cutting homeless men's hair, um, and women. He was just cutting the homeless hair, you know, the hair of the homeless, and he was stopped and ticketed and fined by by police because of occupational licensing. He did not have a license to do that. There was no money that exchanged hands. He was doing this for free. And so you kind of see that humanity is, like, trying to survive here. (laughs) And the government's kind of squashing it. So that, to me, was really telling. And when you can find these stories and you can tell these stories and they're all around, everyone knows somebody's who been impacted. Um, I think that's how you make a real difference and you resonate with
1: people. Absolutely. And I have to admit, I... I used to be fairly brutal, but I'm trying to make this show into a place where people find some sort of understanding and friendship. I, you know, Somebody was texting me last night uh, saying, what are you trying to do? Don't you see what's going on with Trump? Open your eyes. You have a voice. You know, Speak out about this. And I told them, you know what? And I don't know if you agree with this or not, Brittany. I'm not at this point really trying to change the world. I really am just trying to understand it and find friends along the way. That I think it's so often the idea that we're going to change the world or save the world is, well, I guess as Mencken said, it's a false front to want to rule it. And, you know, maybe people are well-intentioned, but do you think that's where some of the, you talk about how, you know, you were a libertarian who would accost people and say, oh, you just don't understand. Sometimes it's almost like, oh, I have this truth. If you don't live up to it, you're a bad person
2: you know, I, I've been really jaded by that. I don't, I'm such a dreamer and an optimist, but I can't say that I don't sometimes wake up and say, you know, I'm going to change the world. (laughs) And and I know that's not, that's not the most, you know, realistic outlook, but I think it just is that it, whatever gives you that drive or that passion or makes you want to do something, you know, makes you, makes you want to get out of bed and fight. And for me, I guess it was always that, you know, idealistic dreamer, but at the same time, over the course of, the time I became a libertarian almost ten years ago to now, um, I've definitely been a little jaded, not only by the election process, but also other libertarians. Because um, hmm. it is—it is, it is hard. You get discouraged a lot. We are underdogs, right? We're not one of the two major parties. Whenever we try to work with either of them, they kind of, you know, dismiss us. It's—it's um, it's kind of a hard lot. So I would agree to it's—it's it's sometimes hard to stay optimistic. And I guess that's—I kind of keep. Keep myself going by saying, you know, if, if one new person reads, you know, something I write, then then I've made a difference. You know, I don't I don't really care if there are more than that, but if one person has read it and enjoyed it, and taken something out of it, then I can you know say I succeeded for the day.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm sure you've met two people in the so-called liberty movement, but I'd imagine across the aisle that are friends who have different beliefs. Like I, this idea that we have to have associate with only the people who have the same political belief seems like nonsense to me.
2: Oh, it's utter nonsense. I don't think that's ever happened. I mean, I'm sure there are people who close themselves off and and make sure that happens, but I just don't see how that's beneficial to anyone.
1: (laughs) Right. And that's what I've come to as, as sort of a revelation. Really, it's just common sense, and I'm a big fool, and it took me a while. But it's just finding... Friendship. The reason I love liberty is I want that to be shared with other people. I want them to flourish as well. Now, before we take a break here, I do this album of the day. It's, I've, you know, millennials can be blamed for a lot but I think they can also be credited with bringing back vinyl records, uh, the hipsters. Um, like For all the streaming services we have, all these big record companies are firing up the record presses again, and I've been listening to a lot of vinyl. And so before I reveal my album of the day, I asked you before you came on, if you had to take one album, and this might change from day to day, who knows, but if you had to take one album, put it on vinyl, that's what you listen to, what do you pick?
2: so I kind of didn't I didn't really tell you what it was I kind of gave you like a preview but I thought of it and it just dawned on me this would be the only album to take it would be the Hamilton soundtrack oh wow that would be my for the rest of eternity that's what I would listen to yeah
1: why would you go with the Hamilton soundtrack
2: it gives me everything I love it gives me the hip hop which I love it gives me musical theater that I love Um, so it's kind of the theatrics It's, it's everything I love in one album
1: oh that's awesome very, very cool. Um, And I actually have not listened to it. I have to be honest.
2: Oh, dear. Yeah, I'm
1: (laughs) I'm impoverished, I know. Um, But I'll have to check it out. So, my album for today, and I love, I've been on this big soul funk R&B kick, is Mavis Staples Only for the Lonely. And then this song right here is called Since I Fell for You. And there's something about this music made from this era that sounds great on vinyl. I don't think I'm just being pretentious. I've actually like tried the digital version with the vinyl version. It sounds fantastic. So, folks, we are talking to Brittany Hunter again from the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll come back right after this break. But for right now, sit back and enjoy some soul from good old Mavis Staples.
0: You took my love and now you go gone Since I fell for you
2: Joey Clark
1: Welcome back to the program. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. The album of the day is Only for the Lonely by Mavis Staples. Came out in
0: 1972.
1: My guest tonight here on the show is Brittany Hunter. She is an associate editor over at the Foundation for Economic Education. I want to move from a topic of, you know, straight-up economics and how the government interferes in our lives, Brittany, and move towards... You pointed out an anniversary that essentially saved the world. The actions of one man.
0: Yeah.
1: And this is a remarkable story, yeah.
2: I'm not going to try to say his name. I'm going to butcher it. (laughs) (laughs) But... um. Do you have it in front of you, by chance?
1: Uh, I know his last name is uh, Petrov. Petrov.
2: Yeah. Yes. I, I can't remember his first name. I feel so bad about this.
1: Stanislav? Uh, yeah, Stanislav. Yeah.
2: Okay, yeah. Stanislav. That's right. Petrov. Um, I didn't know this story until this year, which I found fascinating. Um, so you have this guy who is a, he's monitoring the satellites for the USSR during the height of the Cold War this is i believe a week or very close proximity to when the um, korean airliner commercial airliner was shot down um, flying over soviet airspace so tensions were high this was i believe 1980 I'm, I'm, I'm which of the year. <laughs> i'm not going to say it so so here you have us uh, you know staring staring nuclear war in the face so his job was to alert his his authorities his generals if there were um, missiles launched from, you know, any America American territory, so that's a huge job. Yeah. Well, he's working the night shift, and all of a sudden the alarms go off. Now you also have to keep in mind computers were brand new technology. This was not something that anything you know like we have today. So the alarms start sounding. He has about thirty seconds to decide whether to call his his generals and which case that would mean they <laughs> they would be. Striking against the United States because its alarm had indicated that I think it was five missiles had been launched. So if he had woken his generals and told them, there's a very good chance that nuclear war would have begun because that is what the computer was showing. Uh, however, he decided to pause and take a minute and um, kind of let, let, let logic do its thing. Mm. And he realized that in his training, he was told that if the U.S. did strike, it would most likely be done in a massive scale, it wouldn't be a handful of missiles, right? This would be full-on nuclear war, right? Um, and that was not the case. So instead of waking up his his you know superiors, he decided to check the computer, um, and he found out there was actually a bug. It was showing missiles that weren't there, and as a result, we are all still here today. So that to me is just one of those stories where you think, "Wow, like the world came this close." You know, and and that's not like the Cuban Missile Crisis. We don't hear about the story as often as we hear about um,
1: you know that event. So yes, I thought that, that was
2: really fascinating.
1: That was September 26, 1983. Uh, it's remarkable that one guy that the world relies on one guy, and it makes me think of why we need to understand or at least try to take the time to understand. The world and larger systems like economics, like politics. I think of, for instance, when Ted Cruz stood up a few years ago and said, I'm not going to raise the debt limit until we have a vote on Obamacare or something like that. And somebody said, oh, Ted Cruz is going to default the United States of America. Well, in a way, yeah, but if you have now created such a situation in this country that one senator using what he has at his disposal as a senator to filibuster and to hold up a bill, if he can default the country, I don't think it was just his fault. And it's we build up to these situations where, well, now look at North Korea, and this is why you, I believe, wrote this piece. You put in the context yeah. of what's going on with North Korea today.
0: Exactly.
2: And that's what scares me the most, is, is we have an opportunity right now to either, you know, make diplomatic, uh, take diplomatic measures and, and maybe try not to go to war with each other so easily. Or we can call each other names, I believe. What did Trump call him? I think Rocket Man, which I'll, I'll admit I actually laughed at. But yes. um, yeah, I laughed. But at the end of the day, here are two leaders with access to nuclear weapons name calling each other and egging each other on. What are we doing? <laughs> and, and so part of my reason for writing that was just thinking that it we're not taking the time to think this through. We're not thinking about the consequences. Nuclear war is not something you just you do on a whim or you do because you're mad at someone. That is the destruction of humankind. So I just really think it would be great if, yeah, if we stopped and thought about what we were doing before we are too hasty to go to war.
1: Well, and I, I want to shift gears here a little bit because I, I've been watching a lot of uh, the West Wing. and strangely though i'm a libertarian i really love the west wing um and even though and again i've kind of con- have a conservative bent in some ways uh, but the show is so idealistic and it presents such good again storytelling personal drama and so i want to ask you this question there's one episode where josh lyman the deputy chief of staff is given a little card and he, he it doesn't we're, the audience is not shown why he freaks out when he receives this card. So he goes to all his friends, the you know speechwriter, the deputy speechwriter, all these other folks, the press secretary, and says, "Oh, did you get one of these?" And they said, "No." What are you talking about? Turns out the card is to be the guy in the bunker with the president when, if a nuclear strike begins, a nuclear war begins. And he has this feeling is, of... Is like, that the, the,
2: uh, the nuclear, or what do they call it, a designated survivor? Is that that, that kind
1: of thing? Uh, something like that, yes. That essentially, okay. you're the guy who gets to go in and be safe while the nukes are being flung back and forth. That you get to be with the president while everybody else is, well, good luck. And he has to make a tough decision. And at the end of the episode, well, I won't reveal it yet. If you were given a card like that, I know you wouldn't. You probably wouldn't want to be in that position in the first place. But would you want to be in the bunker with the president, or would you want to give up the card, give up that privilege, and say, I'd rather be with my friends? Uh,
2: okay, so I'm just going to be honest with you. Mortality is like my greatest fear. I think I, I think I'd go in the bunker with the president. <laughs> I think I, think I want to live as long as I possibly could, even if that means having to live with the president. I,
1: I think I would. I appreciate the honest answer. Well, and the, if it's President Bartlett, that guy's not that bad. I mean, he's a he's a flaming Democrat, but he actually seemed to somewhat understand economics. I think he even quotes Schupiter, um at times in that show. But
2: it's funny you bring that up actually because I have a friend of mine who keeps begging me to watch The West Wing. And I haven't started yet. Oh. So I might have to now. You've you've got me intrigued.
1: You you have to watch, especially the the first few seasons, one, two, three. Um Aaron Sorkin is one of my, my favorite producers, writers, director. He doesn't direct. He more is just a writer, but I say director because of how he writes. It's so Uh, well put together he understands sort of the sound of conversation the back and forth and i i wish i could write that well but i so i encourage you and there are a lot of themes that they bring up in that show that i i think libertarians can learn from everybody can learn from but i want to go to another piece of drama because i think we can learn a lot from the art that our society creates and i know you're a big fan game of thrones
2: I like where this is going. Yes,
1: I was. I was hoping it was going in this direction. Yes, yeah. okay. <laughs> I'm a major Game of Thrones fan. Now, as you know, do you think about your own politics here in you know the modern world when you're watching this? Going, would I ever have a way to apply those in this type of world? It seems so dog eat dog.
0: You know, one thing that
2: is is almost problematic about being a writer is I'm always working. My My mind is always, everything I do, I'm thinking, how can I write about this? Or how is this applicable to what I do and what I write about? So it's almost like themes just pop out at me. Hmm. Um, and I, I sometimes wish they wouldn't because I would probably enjoy shows more. <laughs> I could probably turn off my mind more. Right. But there was just, there were so many great themes. And what I have kind of centered the pieces I write about on is, is power and where power is derived from. And how, how all authority has the the capability to be corrupted. Um, so that's the theme that jumps out the most. And I, I think I wrote three pieces. I had about five or six in mind. And I knew that my editor might not let me get them all through because all I was doing was writing about Game of Thrones. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> hey, I, I know that crazy. editor. Are you mean to talk to him? <laughs> you know, it's not like I have oh, any pull.
2: No, it's funny. I just started getting embarrassed. I'm like, yeah, I wrote another piece about Game of Thrones. again. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <laughs> but I've noticed it's, it, it didn't do, that wasn't like the, my highest traffic, you know, my most viral piece. But mm-hmm. that is the piece that I get emailed, um, like one-off emails from people all the time saying, thank you for writing, you know, I love that piece. So that makes it worth it.
1: <laughs> well, why is, because, I mean, I find him entertaining, but why is Littlefinger your favorite? And we don't have to give the spoiler, but why is Littlefinger your favorite character?
2: You know there's something oh okay so obviously i'm a libertarian i don't like you know corrupting authority that being said i like somebody who knows that they're kind of sketchy and kind of embraces that Mm. and there was something so opportunistic about him and so cunning and i found myself like i have a little crush on him and i'm thinking like oh my goodness he's a bad guy like what's going on here but he was just so sly about it and, and just calculated, and I don't know. It made him one of my, my favorite characters.
1: Yeah, well, power does tend to corrupt, but power can also be an aphrodisiac, and there is something about... Uh, I like Littlefinger because he isn't a, of a noble standing. Um, that he is yes, by his yes, wits alone. Yes, up the
2: best point. Yes, and that's the other thing. is He, to me, is kind of an entrepreneur, right? He's, he's this... Um, underdog, you're right, didn't come from a lot. Um, and that's part of the reason I love hip-hop and I write about hip-hop and capitalism a lot is I think it's that same mentality as, of I was not born in this world of a whole lot but I'm going to make myself into something. And sure, Littlefinger made his way by owning brothels, but he was he was still making his way through life. So I think there's something admirable about that.
1: No, I I haven't asked you uh, about this. Like, you grew up in Utah, correct? Yes, I did. So, And there, I think You know, me, I grew up in Alabama, and they're both very culturally conservative states. And do you think there was something about uh, growing up in that environment? It's not, I'm not criticizing it as necessarily a bad way to live, but it seems almost uh, too heavy-handed that you have to be a certain way culturally because, well, whether it's a traditional impulse or a religious impulse...
2: Yeah, but you know what's great about about places like that is the counterculture that grows from it usually is something phenomenal, phenomenal. Yes. Um, and and that's what has happened in Utah. Um, you know, I was into music as a, as a young kid. I, I would go to shows a lot, and Utahns, are Mormons in general, are very musically inclined. Um, and so when you get this countercultural or culture of uh, former Mormons. Um, this beautiful thing happens, and so it was really cool to grow up around that environment. I grew up around a lot of art with a lot of purpose behind it, because everyone had a very strong opinion about something, and even if I didn't agree with it, um, I really enjoyed watching how that art manifested, so I think it actually made the culture that much more interesting.
1: Yeah, and I I tend to agree, well, and that's what I was sort of getting at, is, do you think you were in some ways reacting to that culture? I mean, I don't know what home life was like, but...
2: You (laughs) know, thing, though, because Mormons and Utahs tend to be pretty libertarian. Hmm. It's a very individualistic uh, type of religion. So, yeah, it's not even like rebellion. I actually kind of feel like it's my my upbringing and all my experiences mixed together, what made me this way, if that makes sense.
1: Oh, it it does. And actually, it reminds me, you know, on Monday, I talked about One Nation Under a Groove by Funkadelic, and then I paired that with Lord Acton's sayings. Somehow it worked. (laughs) it reminded me what you just said of Lord Acton talking about how liberty doesn't just come out of a vacuum. That to understand liberty you need sort of a developed ethical system. And there are a lot of ways to develop an ethical system. You could, you know, grab from Ayn Rand if you want to be atheistic. You go to Aristotle. You could go to... I I was raised in the Catholic Church. Um, Now, were you raised Mormon or was it more... Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, I was raised. Yeah, full thing. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Do you think that influenced you that if you can have personal constraints, and I don't know if you've kept them or not, we don't have to go into that, but when you are taught to have some sort of personal pride and responsibility, that gives you more of a fealty for liberty?
2: Absolutely, and it's a very self-sustaining religion. Um, actually, um, historian and economist Murray Rothbard wrote about the Mormon church as being the prime example of private welfare because they have, we have our own, I say weeks. I used to be apartment, but um, their own farms, their own uh, grocery stores, and they manufacture everything. So they've built their own self-sustaining community, which is phenomenal. Even if I don't agree with their belief system, what they've done with this private charity is, is unlike anything I've ever seen. So there was this self-sustaining and this kind of survival mentality um, that just kind of prepared me for a world of libertarianism.
1: That's awesome. And, you know, we have about nine minutes left, and I don't talk about this often on the public airwaves, but, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, used to be. Uh, I was raised Catholic. I do not any longer really consider myself Catholic anymore, but there's a lot that I learned being raised Catholic that... I keep with me. There's a lot of wisdom in that tradition. And I'm sure you probably found in Mormonism there's a lot of wisdom in that uh, tradition. But was there something that you, maybe you don't believe in every single article of faith anymore, but what were some of the main things you took from growing up in the Mormon church?
2: Yeah, there was a really strong belief on... um individuality as far as it pertains to your, your relationship with, with the deity or God or, you know, whatever you believe it is. Um, and I really liked that, that it was a one-on-one thing. I liked that the individual mattered, that it wasn't necessarily, you know, a group think, um, and I found that to be somewhat unique from other religions. Um, and also, I think the, the entrepreneurial side of it, the side that they, you know, my religion was from, they were cast out of their homes and their towns and they were chased off and some of the time they deserved it. <laughs> I will admit that. But uh, you know they were persecuted and they had to learn to survive, and so I think that's that's an admirable trait, and I think it's made me, you know, able to, to brave the the storm as you know getting my career started and things like that. I think it's it's been just you, like you said, it's been a source of wisdom, even if I don't agree with each you know <laughs> each oh, single principle.
1: Oh, and absolutely, and I. Again, I don't necessarily agree with every article of faith of the Catholic Church, but they did teach me some basic uh, things. Um, And, you know, I've come to understand that, where, you know, I was this rebellious kid. Really, I was a a Boy Scout, but internally, in my own mind, I was always asking these questions like, is that really the reason, you know, that we have the world as it is? Is that really the reason, the only way? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's Trisha Beck-Peter, I believe, a colleague of yours. Is she still there at FEE?
2: She is, and she is just amazing.
1: Yes, and she wrote a a piece talking about uh, freedom of speech. And it reminded me of, you know, these preachers, these fire and brimstone preachers that would come to the campus. And I had this one guy who, after the hullabaloo of the day was over, he asked me where the bathroom was. And what amazed me is I said, okay, let me walk with you. It's over this way, and I'm not going to go in the bathroom with you. I don't have to go. But let me ask you something. Do you call people names? Do you try to get a rise out of people in order for them to pay attention to you? And he said, yes, absolutely. And so I have a question for you in this way. When you're advancing you know, free markets and libertarianism, it's almost something Penn Jillette has brought up. That Are you trying to sort of manipulate people? Do you think that is ethical to try to use tricks in order to get people to pay attention? Or do you think it should just be yourself? Um, I've taken the approach these days, and Lord knows that I have done both approaches, and I now think the manipulative approach is sort of wrong, trying to get a rise out of people. But I now say I plead ignorance. I don't really know. Like I said, I'm not trying to change the world. I'm just trying to understand it and make friends along the way how have you found as you've developed and you said you used to be this you know you know fierce and maybe that's just youth uh how have you come to understand this
2: yeah and i it kind of came down to what was what was my motives and earlier in those days i was actually trying to get people to you know vote for my candidate and that was really a terrible method because i was just telling them they're wrong um and as i have kind of matured politically and matured in my ideology and that, you know, elections became less important to me and ideas became the center of my world, um, to me, it, it, it is like entertainment. It is like music. It is like a movie. If it's not entertaining, no one's going to care what you have to say. Um, and that's kind of what I think every time I write is, do I even want to read this myself? Would I click on this? Um, because I do. I think you have to be entertaining. I think you have to get people there and you're not going to do that unless you, you, you're you able to entertain them and make them want to read more. So, yeah.
1: So, uh, give me some more entertainment. Well, actually, I want you, a white girl from Utah, to school me in hip-hop. Where should I begin? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, it's funny. I have to say this. My sister went to high school with Snoop Dogg. So, every, I grew up in L.A. I moved to Utah when I was 15. Okay. So, yeah. So, I always laugh because I'm like, I know. I'm like this musical theater addict who pretends and writes about, you know, tends to love hip-hop, writes about hip-hop. Uh, but it's always just been a big part of my life. I grew up in L.A. during the L.A. riots. I saw how hip-hop was both influenced by that and how the riots were influenced by hip-hop. Hmm. I thought it was a, a really interesting narrative on the state and on, um, on just policing um, authority. That very early on shaped how I viewed that and my, you know, activism on, on making sure everybody has representation and is protected under the law. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's so much to take from it but jay-z's new album specifically there's one line that says um financial freedom my only hope and he his whole album proceeds to be like financial advice that he wished he had had when he was a kid mm. and i loved that and i wrote about that because i was thinking like that is the most free market approach you can take uh it was it was beautiful so i highly recommend listening to that album
1: Well, and I know maybe it's the millennial in us, and I think both of us are on the older side of the millennial generation. I was 1988, so uh, I guess... 85, yep.
2: 88, (laughs) 85,
1: we're we're nowhere near those 1990s babies. Um, (laughs) But there's something about uh, hip-hop, I'm not going to act like I'm an expert, I have just kind of grew up with it, and it reminds me of what I was talking about Monday with funk, that you, you start to see this different way uh, of living and being. And what I'm trying to get folks to understand is that when you give people liberty, if we really care about liberty, they're going to choose to live in different ways. And you may not like it. It may not be what you want to dance to or what you want to listen to. But you should at least respect it. And I find it so interesting. And in hip-hop it is about... It isn't just, oh, signs of wealth, as some people like to say. It isn't, you know, I'm sure some feminists I know would talk about the misogyny in some hip-hop. But, like, there is this empowerment message in so much of the music.
2: Yes, and you do bring up a good point. There's there's a hint of misogyny. There's some misogyny there. <laughs> but, but, yes, um, there there are a lot of good lessons. And, again, and it's the same thing I brought up with, with the religion I was raised in is is the self-sustaining is that survival is that making money is how you survive and in all these instances that we talked about you know over this last hour the government is putting up these barriers and people just want to make money and be prosperous and be free and be happy and that's not that much to ask for
1: well and you don't necessarily have to end up a big celebrity like jay-z and i'm not i've not yet listened to the album um but i'd imagine what he's telling folks it's not about signs of st- status or class. It's not about yes. having bling or having, you know, nice cars or having money to throw around. It's about improving self.
2: Exactly. It, it, but, and having a legacy to leave behind. And, and like you said, it doesn't matter if you're someone like Jay-Z. One of the lines he talks about is how proud he is that he invested in some art that he can leave to his children. Um, but there's that, there's that legacy of passing something down and how, how much pride that fills
1: us So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and folks, we've been talking to Brittany Hunter from the Foundation for Economic Education this past hour, and I'm going to issue an apology on both our behalfs, Brittany. We are both caffeine fiends. Um, yep. At this time of the day, I am caffeined up. So I hope some folks learned a little bit from our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, and I'll let Mavis Staples take us out. But thank you again, Brittany, for joining me tonight.
2: Thank you, Joey.
1: Have a good night. Again, folks, you're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Have a good night. Let Mavis Staples take you away. You
0: went away Without a warning Left me in a cold world On my own You molded me Into your special woman Now the story